You're listening to audio from The Village Church. This teaching is designed to be listened to after having completed the lesson in the workbook. It is not intended to stand alone. You can download the workbook at tvcresources.net. Okay, so here we are, week six. We are in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And last week, we saw that David had been installed as king over all of Israel, and he was defeating all of their enemies. They were ruling and subduing the whole uh, region. And we saw uh, Elizabeth did a great job of pointing out that he's basically being told about battles that are happening on all four sides of Israel to know that they are subduing the land. And we will see the conclusion of that at the end of our teaching this week. We also saw David's kindness to Mephibosheth. And I said it right this time, so it's going to be a good morning. Uh, his kindness to Mephibosheth. Don't dare, don't, don't tempt anybody to, by keeping on saying it. Only say it as few times as you must. So his kindness Kindness to uh, Jonathan's son, <laughs> and that he actually brings the lame and the blind to be seated at the king's table in Jerusalem, which was kind of a very nice poetic finish to that whole theme. Uh, one of the lingering questions you may have had after last week was, why were David's sons serving as priests? Did anybody have that on their radar? So the question is, is that wrong? And then we had had you look up in different translations. So this is chapter 8, verse 18, where it said that David's sons were serving as priests. And, and some of the translations say they were serving as administrators. And that, you know, it's kind of unclear whether that was a translational workaround because someone didn't want to deal with the weird possibility that maybe his sons were serving as priests. So there are a couple of ways to think about this. You, you may take from this that they were in an administrative role. You can go with the, the translators who went that direction. But another way to think about it is in Psalm 110, David writes uh, a prophetic word about Jesus Christ, and he describes him as one who will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's right, Melchizedek, which is second only in difficulty of pronunciation to Mephibosheth. And so Melchizedek is sort of the shadowy figure that you find in the book of Genesis. He is a, uh, a Canaanite who becomes a priest king of Jerusalem. And uh, ultimately, this finds its fulfillment in Christ, as we hear in Psalm 110. And later in the book of Hebrews, there's a, it's belabored quite a bit in the book of Hebrews. And so some commentators will say that David has, throughout this book, been acting as a priest king. We've seen him wear an ephod, and we've said we weren't sure whether it was the same ephod that the priest would have worn or not. We've seen him eating the bread that was in um, the holy, uh, of holy, of the, in the holy place. And so there have been priest-like activities that David has been performing. And so some commentators would say that he himself is serving as a priest king ruling from Jerusalem, pointing toward Christ. So take your pick. There you go. And now this week, all of that was basically just me stalling to avoid having to start the lesson this week. Um, This week, we will see David's utter scorn, to borrow a phrase from the text, his utter scorn for the Lord. It is viscerally shocking, or at least it should be to us, based on what we have seen of his story thus far, that we will find ourselves facing down his utter scorn for the Lord. It is no, um, no underestimation to say that I have been thinking about and praying about and reading about and preparing for this lesson since we decided to study Samuel. It has been heavy on my mind, this lesson and then the lesson that we will have about Tamar. Um, It's so funny because when you spend a lot of time in the commentaries, you start to pick up pretty quickly that, um, and this is, uh, you know, commentaries are typically written by men. And uh, there, one commentator whose name you would absolutely know gave one entire sentence to talking about the death of the child. One sentence! And I was like, I'm going to have to stand in front of hundreds of women two times on a Tuesday and talk about this. And one sentence is not going to cover it. And so, but you guys worked it all out in small group, right? Like you're, <laughs> if only. So, uh, so I've just really wanted to do honor to this passage. I've just really wanted to make sure that we were seeing it um, um, the way that it, it should have been seen, that it would have been received by its original audience. So that's what we're going to try to do today as we look at the story of David and Bathsheba. Um, a word before we begin. The story of David and Bathsheba is often presented to us as a tale of adultery. 
and it is adultery by a strict definition. The problem that we have is that in our culture today, when we think of adultery, we think of an affair right? An affair. And that's when he sees her, she sees him, they develop an interest in one another, and then they begin an illicit relationship. So that is not what we are seeing in the text today. We are seeing David commit adultery against the marriage of Uriah and Bathsheba. This is, we'll, we'll flesh this out more as we get into the text, but it is adultery in the sense that, do you know what the word adulterate means? It means contaminate or ruin. And we are going to see David contaminate and ruin what we will find was a happy marriage. So let's get into the text, starting in verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So we have this introductory sentence here that tells us that they're, they're waging war against the Ammonites and besieging Rabbah. And so did you go and peek on your map to see where that was? I really hope you did. You can see the word Ammonites over there on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And right below it, you will see Rabbath Ammon. Do you see that? That's Rabbah. That's the town that we'll see come back up at the end of the lesson this week. So basically, David has sent Joab out. And, and his servants with him, and all of Israel, and they are taking the rest of the territory. And right in the middle of this sort of perfunctory report, then we get this zoom in on what's happening with David, and the pace of the narrative is going to slow down significantly. But we need to take a few things from here that we may not have paid attention to. It says that it's the spring of the year, and it says that it's the time when kings go out to battle. Why do you think that spring is the time when kings go out to battle? Nice weather, right? The weather's going to be good. And also, when you're thinking about feeding an army while you're on, on the way to wherever you're going to fight your battle, spring is a time when there would be food available as you are making your way to wherever you are going, and even when you get there. So it's logically the time when kings go out to battle, and yet where do we find the king of Israel? He is at home in his palace, and it says that he is remaining in Jerusalem, let me read to you the words of Jesus in Mark 8, 34 and 35. It says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. So he says, If anyone would come after me. And what is that phrase that we've heard used of David so many times? That David is a man after God's own heart. And I've asked you to rephrase that, that it's a man of God's choosing is a more accurate way of phrasing that. But here we see what it looks like to be someone who is following after Christ. And what does he say? He says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the way of Christ is self-denial and service. The way of Christ is self-denial and service. And what we're seeing here in David's choice to remain in Jerusalem is the inverse of that. It is self-indulgence and idleness. Self-indulgence and idleness. I think there is something that we should pay attention to here. Because so often you and I think of the point of our salvation as the point at which we just lie back and enjoy the rest of life. But what has Jesus just said? Self-denial and service. One of the ways that I have phrased this is that your justification will cost you nothing, but your sanctification will cost you everything. All of your pride, all of your self-love, all of your self-promotion, all of your self-loathing, it will cost all of the selves. It will be the constant laying down of self. And yet we see here David elevating himself. It is someone else's job to go and fight. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. 
And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So here we are in these short verses seeing a picture of something that, as you saw in your homework, is pointing back to the earliest story of sin that we find in the Bible, a pattern of seeing and wanting and taking, seeing and wanting and taking. And I hope that you were jarred by the words in verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her. Because what have we seen? What was the warning of Samuel? If you have a king over you, he will take and he will take and he will take and he will take. Pay attention to the taking and the giving in this week's text. He took her. So where was he? he was, he's taken a nap, so he's having a real tough day already. And then he's out walking on the roof of the king's house. What would you call the king's house? A palace, and, and, and regarding the other buildings that would have been in Jerusalem, which one do you think was the tallest? The palace, right? So he is in an elevated position. Uh, the palace represents his elevated status, and we're going to come back to that in just a minute, but he's in an elevated position where he is enjoying comfort and ease, and he can look down across the rooftops, and as he does so, he sees, it says he sees from the roof a woman bathing. And why is she bathing? It says that she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and uh, that's so gently worded. What, is, what does it mean? You've got to look in your homework at Leviticus 15. She has just finished having her... It's a lady's study. Say it louder. Her period. That's right. Why? Where else can you do that? Come on. <laughs> so many period jokes. Okay. Um, why, is this, why is this detail included for us in the text? Because she, if she has just had her period, what can we know for certain? She is not currently pregnant. She is not currently pregnant. That's why that is included for us here. She is minding her own business. She is actually demonstrating that she is a virtuous woman, that she is following the law. And there she is on her roof, minding her own business, and he sees, he sees her. And it doesn't just say that he sees her, it says that he sees that she was beautiful, which means that his gaze must have lingered on her. He sees her, and he desires her, and then he takes her. He asks her name first, which is, well, it says he inquired about the woman, and you notice how she is just the woman throughout this passage, and then she will be called the wife of Uriah, and we'll notice in the text when all of a sudden she receives the use of her actual name. But she is named as Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and I know you love Eliam and think about him all the time in the scriptures, so I wanted to make sure that you knew who he was. Eliam, according to 2 Samuel 23, which we haven't gotten to yet, 2334, uh, Eliam's father is named Ahithophel, and he is Ahithophel the Gilanite, so he is a Canaanite. So she's the granddaughter of a Canaanite, and she's married to Uriah the Hittite, who would also have been a, a Canaanite. Okay, And so this is significant because when you look at the genealogy of Jesus and you see that there are five women who are named in that genealogy, the last one is Mary. Mary is an Israelite. But all of the other four women, guess what they are? They're Canaanites. And that's the significance. Like what you will hear is, oh, God puts uh, Tamar, Genesis Tamar and uh, Rahab and, um, and Bathsheba. And, um, and he puts these women in there because they are sinners. That's what's often taught. Like sexual sin is what is accompanying these women. But I don't know if you've ever paid attention to the names of the men that are in those lists. <laughs> right? So there's nothing that would distinguish these women if, for the sake of argument, that is why they're placed in the genealogy. That would not distinguish them at all from the long list of the men who are in there. The thing that is significant about these women is that they are Canaanites, and the promise of Abraham, and in fact with the covenant that was made with David last in, in chapter 7, is a promise that is not just for Israel, it is ultimately for who? The whole world. And so the only way you can bring a, a sense of the good news going to the whole world into a genealogy that goes through the male line, which requires that all the male names would be Israelites, is to have women's names interspersed to our Canaanites to show that the Lord is redeeming a people for himself. So 
It says, so David sent messengers in verse 4 and took her and she came to him and he lay with her and she returned to her house and it doesn't say Bathsheba, it says the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. In Hebrew, this is just two words. And those are the only two words we will hear Bathsheba speak in the entire story. Why is she referred to as the woman over and over again? Because that is the way that David is seeing her. He does not see her as a person with a name and a family. He sees her as a commodity. He sees her as an object. And before we spend too much time pulling apart this part of the story, we're going to wait until we get to hear what Nathan has to say when he talks about what has just transpired. Because it's in this part of the story that people begin to say, oh, well, she came to him, right? Like he sent for her, but she came to him. And I want to make sure that we keep the emphasis where it should be. He took. He took. We're going to find out that Uriah is equated with a poor man. And David is equated with a rich man, which he certainly was in Nathan's story. He has power. He has status. He has prestige. And I ask you, could she have refused his his command? All right, picking up in verse 6. We will see as the story continues that I see and I want and I take is not all that happens in this story. And it's not all that happened in the story in Eden either. What was the next step after they saw and desired and took the fruit? They concealed. They tried to conceal what they had done. But there was a certain consequence that followed. And what was it? You will surely die. Watch that pattern play out in this story. Verse 6. So the woman is pregnant. That's a problem for David. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. So he makes a little small talk with Joab. Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So let's stop before we go on with the story. When David says to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet, were you like, hmm, that's an odd statement. That is an idiom. Washing your feet would have been the thing that you did right before you went to bed at night. And so the the softest version of the idiom would be, go to your house and go to bed. But what is the intent of David's phrasing? Go home and sleep with your wife. He needs that to happen. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. David even sends a gift along. Like, hey, go have a spa night. You just go home. You enjoy yourself. (laughs) Verse 10 says, When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, now pay attention to this. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, okay? Now another word that's used here for booths would be tents if you looked at other translations. And so whether you regard it as a booth that is made, you know, like a structure of of, uh, logs that is draped in canvas or a tent like you and I think of a tent, what we're to understand here is that they're living in temporary dwellings. So he says, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. There's a lot going on here. First of all, whether Uriah intended it to be or not, this is a reproof of David's behavior. He basically says, how could I go and enjoy the comforts of home when the people who are fighting are not enjoying the comforts of home? This Hittite dwelling among the people of Israel, serving as one of David's mighty men, is a more righteous Israelite than the king of Israel himself. And did you notice what his argument was? The ark of the Lord is living in a tent. Why would I go sleep at the palace? Does that sound like another thing that we read a couple weeks ago? Where David in chapter 7 says to Nathan, I live in a palace, but God lives in a tent. You know what I'll do? I will build God a palace. 
What was David saying? You know what I need to do? I need to bring God up to my glorious position. And what has his glorious position cost him? It means that he is in an elevated place where he looks down on a rooftop on someone and sees her as less than and takes her. But Uriah's attitude is the opposite. I want to be with the same attitude and disposition as the Lord himself. He says, I will not do this thing. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, so he's tried two different methods of getting him to go back to his house. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Man, he's a tough one. Even when he's plowed, he doesn't go home. And why was he drunk? Because he got drunk? No, because David made him drunk. What is David doing here? He is sowing fig leaves. He's telling himself, I can handle this. I can work this out. And the whole time, with every repetition where Uriah shows himself to be a righteous man, David's heart is growing harder and harder. So we have concealment phase one, which has concluded, and now David is going to move to concealment phase two. And I actually think we see a little bit of a parallel here, maybe a lot of a parallel here between the way that Pharaoh dealt with the Hebrew midwives back in Exodus. Do you remember what he did? First, he came to them and said, I want you to kill the male children. And they did not do it because they were righteous and they feared God more than Pharaoh. And then when that plan didn't work, Pharaoh takes matters into his own hands and commands all of the Egyptians to kill the children. What do we see here? We see a similar pattern with David. Verse 14, he escalates with concealment phase two. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and don't miss this, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He makes Uriah carry his own death sentence. Verse 15, in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Verse 16, and as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. Why? Because valiant men will take risks. Verse 17, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. David gets what he wants. But you notice that it is not just Uriah the Hittite who dies. Also, some of David's most valiant men are struck down in this foolish attack. There is a cost not just to the life of Uriah, but of many valiant lives. Verse 18, Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Now, before we get into the rest of this weird little part in here, um, what what is Joab anticipating? That when the news comes and David hears that a lot of good men have been lost, he is going to be upset with Joab. So Joab is now trying to cover himself to make sure he doesn't get in trouble. But the, the way that Joab anticipates the conversation going and even the story that he references are highly ironic. So he's anticipating David's negative response, and he says, if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Then he says, who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? And you're like, I have no idea, right? Was that your first thought? (laughs) So do you know who Abimelech is? Abimelech was the son of Jerub Baal. This is a different pronunciation, a different version of that name here. And who was Jerub Baal? Gideon in the book of Judges. You're like, oh, I love the book of Judges. I study it all the time. Well, you should. It actually is a really great and terrible book. But in that story, Abimelech is the son of Gideon's concubine, and he tries to seize power. And when he has seized power and is ruling over Israel, he gets into a battle where he unwisely gets too close to the wall of a city. It's actually one of my favorite stories in the whole book. And this woman chunks a millstone over the wall and just squashes him. 
And so it was supposed to be this huge embarrassment and mark of shame that that's the way he dies. He doesn't die the valiant death of a warrior on the battlefield. He is killed by a woman who apparently had a lot of upper body strength uh, and hoists this thing onto him. But why is this an ironic story? Let's read it. It says in verse 21, who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? He says, if he says that, then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So this way, Joab is saying he can count the cost and understand that it was so that his wishes would be carried out. But this story, which is found in Judges 9, sets up an irony for us here because Abimelech is a foolish ruler of Israel whose incautious actions caused him to die at the hands of a woman. So there is a nice parallel there to what we're seeing go on with David's story here. In verse 22, we'll see if David responds with any kind of pushback. Verse 22 says, So the messengers went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then he's waiting, like he's waiting for things to go badly. And how does David respond? With an absolute hard heart. It says, David said to the messenger in verse 25, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. Do not let this matter displease you. Translates literally, do not let this matter be evil in your eyes. Hold on to that. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Now catch the way it's worded. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She was pleased because she already had a thing going on with David and she really wanted to cover up the story. What does it say? She lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. I shudder to think what would have been her fate had she turned up pregnant and not had a husband. When David brings her into his house, it preserves her from being condemned. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, that displeased the Lord, guess what it translates literally to? But the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So David says, do not let this matter be evil in your eyes, Joab. And then the narrator is careful to point out that what David has done is evil in the eyes of the Lord. So we notice that Bathsheba laments over her husband. And then look at what it says there at the end of verse 27. But the thing that David and Bathsheba had done displeased the Lord. What does it say? The thing that David had done. We do not hear David lament. In fact, we see the opposite. We find that the guilt is David's alone. We will see this reinforced in chapter 12. Look at the first verse of chapter 12. Just that little first phrase, it says what? And the Lord what? Sent Nathan to David. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Do you hear what that is? That's a hopeful phrase. In fact, this word sent was used 12 times in chapter 11. 12 times we saw David sending. We saw Bathsheba sending. We saw Joab sending. And now in chapter 12, the opening phrase is supposed to perk up our ears because God sends Nathan to David. Who is Nathan? He is a prophet. So what will he speak to David? The words of the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had brought. And he brought it up and grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Let's stop right there. I know you've read the rest of it, but let's just set up where we are at this point. So first of all, Nathan begins to tell, he doesn't walk up and go, I know what you did. What does he do? He begins to tell a story. He's going to draw David in because he knows, and more even than Nathan, God knows exactly what it will take for David to see what he has done. When your heart is hardened, sometimes a direct approach is not the one that works best. And he tells a story, and there's a rich man, and he has very many flocks and herds. What do you think the very many flocks and herds represent? First of all, the rich man would be David, and the poor man would be Uriah. So we find that Uriah is probably not, even though this is a, a parable, he's probably not a man of great means. But David, we know, is a man of great means. And he has many flocks and herds, which are in comparison to one little ewe lamb. So the one little ewe lamb would be Bathsheba. So what do you think the very many flocks and herds are? Wives and concubines. Wives and concubines. He has many. So stay with the imagery here. So then we find out that the one little ewe lamb that belongs to the poor man, he has brought up and it has grown up with him and his children and it eats of his morsel and drinks from his cup and lies in his arms, that it is cherished, that it is like a daughter to him. So we would describe it then as a lamb that was ultimately not, you know what they say, like you don't, you don't name the pig that's going to become the bacon, Right? But what are we seeing here? Do we, do we have any impression that this lamb was at any point going to be consumed? No. Treats it as a member of his family. And chillingly, what we are seeing described here is the tender care, adoration, and fidelity of a one-woman man. What Bathsheba was not by any stretch was a lamb intended for the slaughter. Verse 4 says, Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, which was never intended for slaughter. And he prepared it for the man who had come to him. So we need to make sure that we have followed this imagery to the end. So we know who the rich man is. It's David. We know the poor man is Uriah. We know that the ewe lamb is Bathsheba, never intended for slaughter. We know that the many flocks and herds of David seem to be utilized for consumption and are multiple. Who is the traveler that comes to the rich man? I propose to you that the traveler is none other than David's lust. He is visited by lust, and he takes that which was not meant to be consumed, and he sacrifices it to feed his lust. He adulterates what was a pure and beautiful marriage. He contaminates. He ruins. Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Now David has kind of gone beyond what the law would have required if this were a literal story. The law would have required restitution be made for the lamb, but because this is not a story about a lamb, it is a story about human beings, then we can know that he has actually pronounced the appropriate sentence that should fall upon himself. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you, what, despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? So in verses 7 and 8, we hear God say, I gave, 
I gave and I gave and I gave to you and I would have given you still more. And that word despise should have jumped out at you because we've seen that those who are using, that word is being used with in the text, who despise God. So we had the sons of Eli and then we had um, Micah despise David a few weeks back. It means that you are in opposition to God. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? I gave, God says. And then what does he say in the verse 9? He says, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have what? Taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 7 and 8, God says, I gave And in verse 9, he says, you took. You took what was not yours to take. And then in verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Oh my goodness, you think you did something in secret? Nothing is secret before the Lord. He says, I will lay it bare. So he says, I gave and you took, and then he says, and now I will take from you. Why? Because to whom much is given, much is required. Mark 4, 22, Jesus says, For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, and nothing concealed except to be brought to light. If anyone has ears to hear, he had better listen. That's the net translation. I just really liked that last part. He had better listen. Will David listen? Will he receive the word of the Lord? Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. No problem. Okay, first, notice that David's response to the convicting work of the word of God is that he repents. I have sinned against the Lord. Why is this significant? First of all, does it bother you that he says, I've sinned against the Lord? Because I'm like, well, yeah, you sinned against the Lord, but what about what you did to Uriah and what you did to Bathsheba? But what is the point here? I mean, you saw in Psalm 51 that he says, against you and you alone, O Lord. Are we to take that to mean that David doesn't think it matters that he sinned against these people? No, it's articulating a principle that we had better pay close attention to. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as you love yourself. What do you think happens when you utterly scorn the Lord? You will utterly scorn your neighbor. What do you think is the reason that you despise other people in your life? It is a function of a matter in which you are despising God himself in some regard. This is why murder is such a big deal, because you are killing someone who is made in the image of God, and if you can kill someone who looks like him, then that means you would probably kill him if you had the opportunity. Utterly scorned. The word of the Lord convicts David, and David confesses. But notice that he doesn't just confess to God. We hear his confession to God in Psalm 51, as you saw in your homework. But here we hear him confess to Nathan. So important. We must certainly confess our sins to God, but it is important that we would confess them to one another as well, as the New Testament points out. 
And what we cannot miss here is the contrast with Saul and David, because we've said that Saul is the man of the people's choosing, and David is the man of God's choosing, and we said it didn't mean that David was going to be a stunning hero in the story. It meant that the, the characteristic that defined him most as different from Saul was that he would what? Do this. Repent. Because what did Saul do when God confronted him in 1 Samuel 15? Samuel confronts Saul, and it's the bleeding of sheep and all of that, and what does he do? He evades and he excuses. But what does David do here? He confesses and he repents. And what is the response of God when we do that? He says, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Or as David says in Psalm 51, 17, a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. But will there be no consequence? We see God clothe Adam and Eve in the skins of animals to cover their shame, but were there no consequences? You will surely die. And so Nathan leaves with a hard word. He tells him that the child who was born to David and to Bathsheba will die. And then he goes. And then look at the second part of verse 15. It says, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. The child that Uriah's wife bore to David. And he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do harm to himself." But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. You hear the repetition, dead, 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 dead. Do you remember the genealogy in Genesis? And he lived this many years and then he died. And he lived this many years and then he died. And he lived this many years and then he died. That rhythm that is set up for us to know with certainty that when we sin, death is ultimately the result. James even uses the metaphor of pregnancy to say that sin is conceived and when it is full-blown, it gives birth to death. What do we do with this? We can't just hurry past it. What do we do with the death of the child? Well, let me answer one question first that might be in your head. Is this a story about me personally? Like, I lost a child. Was God punishing me for a sin? I would imagine there are women in this room who have lost a child wondering, is this how God behaved toward me? What do I take from this? And I want to reassure you of something this is not a story that applies to you in that way. Unless you are a key player in bringing about the birth of the Messiah. And then in that case, you might want to sharpen up your ears. But what we're seeing here is a story that is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. It is describing what happened to David in the line that would lead to Christ. This is a story not about infant loss. It is a story about God preserving his covenant to his people, no matter the wickedness of those in the line of Christ. This is one of the things that makes me the craziest about the way we are taught to read the Bible, is if we're always looking for that personal application, think of the enormous harm we can do. And so just as the stories of women who deal with infertility in the line of Christ are not stories about infertility for you, so also the death of this child is not telling you that if you sin against God, he will take your child's life. But 
that doesn't fix all of our questions, does it? Because the next question we come to is, does God kill David's baby? Anybody wonder that this week? Maybe you're like, no, I didn't wonder it because it says that the Lord afflicted the child and the child died. What I wondered was how I was going to keep on reading my Bible for the rest of my life after that. And again, context matters. This is why we don't just read this story and not the rest of the story. Because this has been a pattern that we have seen in the text. Do you remember when Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark? And the Lord breaks out against him because of his holiness, and Uzzah dies. And I asked you when we were looking at the story of Uzzah, who was responsible for the death of Uzzah? And what was your answer? David. David was responsible for the death of Uzzah. He is the one in charge. He is the one who was responsible. He was the one who knew how the ark should have been carried, and it was not carried according to the way that it should have been. So now let me ask you, who is responsible for the death of the baby? David. David is responsible for the death of the baby. God brings about the consequence that must come. God breaks out against David for transgressing his holiness. Because what was the Levitical requirement for murder? What was the law's requirement? It was a life for a life. Uriah's father loses a son in this story. So David also will lose a son. But in the midst of it, we note the compassionate outcome for the child. Because what does David say? He says that he knows he will see the child again. We'll get to that in just a minute because there's even more there than just that. But there's other things going on here in this passage Let's go ahead and read to the end of it, and then I want to circle back and show you a little bit more about why we see this happening with the child that is born of the union of David and Bathsheba when she is the wife of Uriah versus the child who was born of David and Bathsheba when she is the wife of David. Look at verse 2. So he's learned that the child is dead, and it says... I'm sorry, it's verse 20. I can't read my notes. It says, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows what the Lord, whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. But he will not return to me. So we look at this and we're like, well, gosh, David, you sure got over that fast. But I think what we're supposed to take from this is David is trying to own what is happening he interceded as best he knew, knowing that the Lord had told him. I think that's a demonstration to us that he is willing to ask. He's willing to ask for the outcome that he desires. But he submits himself to the will of the Lord ultimately. But notice what he says. He says, can I bring him back again? What is the answer? No. I shall go to him, meaning when I die, but he will not return to me. Interestingly, we have a little inversion here of an idea that we hold dear as believers. If you're familiar with the liturgy surrounding the Eucharist in a high church setting, when you're taking the Lord's Supper, there's a repetition of a phrase, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. What does David say here? The child has died, he will not rise. He will not return again. And yet Christ will die and rise and return. Look at verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. So she is named and she is reported as his wife. 
Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Solomon is taken from that word shalom, which means peace, and Solomon means man of peace. Who else do we know is a man of peace? Christ. You remember when the prophecy is given to David with the covenant, and it says that your son will be the one who builds a temple for me, and that that throne will endure forever. And here he is, the one that will point to him. He called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. The Lord loved who? Solomon. It says, send a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, because of the Lord. So let's see if we can figure out why this plays out the way that it does. The firstborn child in that union, who was a child born between the wife of Uriah and David, is set aside for the second-born son, who is the child of the union of David and Bathsheba. The second-born son, Solomon, becomes the temple-building king, pointing to Christ. There's this whole discussion in Galatians 4, 28 through 31 uh, between Ishmael and Isaac, where Ishmael is referred to as the child born of the flesh, and Isaac is referred to as the child born of the spirit, and we are told that we are like the child born of the spirit, not the child of the servant woman, but the child of the, the rightful woman. And what the commentators say is being communicated in Galatians is that Ishmael is the child. Do you remember the story of Ishmael? That's when Sarah says, hey, go into Hagar, my servant, and Ishmael is conceived. And and God blesses Ishmael, but ultimately Ishmael is not the one through the line who the line will come through because it says the line will come through Sarah and Abraham. That was the promise. But Ishmael is born of the will of man. In other words, he is born out of an act of self-sufficiency. We can take matters into our own hands and bring about whatever ends we want. And then contrasting to that is Isaac, who is the miraculous child born not of the will of man, but of the will of God. Is this sounding like anything else we've been talking about in in Samuel? So you have the king who is of the will of the people and the king who is of the will of God. And so we see in this story a similar pattern that the child that dies is the child born of the will of man. And the child that lives and becomes king is the child born of the will of God. God's sovereign choosing is in view here. You see a similar thing with Esau and Jacob, where the second child is the one who will receive the blessing and the birthright. Actually, a similar thing with Cain and Abel. Cain is the firstborn, Abel is the secondborn. Abel finds favor in God's eyes. And I think the other thing that we should take from the story of the child is that up until this point in the narrative, we have seen the house of David growing stronger and stronger. How? Through the multiplication of children. You remember Michael is left childless because the house of Saul is becoming weaker and weaker. And so to see King David lose a child is to say, is your house going to continue to grow stronger and stronger? You will obey me. I don't think it makes it easier, but I hope it makes it at least make a little more sense. So then we conclude... This portion of the text where, honestly, I feel like, couldn't we just leave this part off because this has all been a lot and let's just go home. But we see in verse 26, the conclusion of the battle against Rabbah. It says, now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. I have taken. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold and then it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. 
And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. I think that this section is doing a couple of things. I think the first thing it's doing is bringing us back around and saying, all right, now I've just given you a lot of context for what you're going to see in the rest of the story of Samuel. David was not in battle. He was at home in his palace, self-indulgent and self-seeking and idle. And now where is he? He is back where he should be. He is in battle. And yet I think there are a few little warning signs here. That repetition of take, take, take always makes me perk up my ears. And why did we need to know that he took the crown of the king and its weight was a talent of gold and it had a precious stone? That feels a little bit like a warning as well. So here we have David, the man of God's choosing. What are we to do with him? And I've told you that parts of this story don't actually apply to you as literally as you might think they do because this is a story about a particular time and a particular purpose of the Lord's. But there is always something that applies to us, is there not? Let's see if we can't find it. David's utter scorn for God resulted in utter scorn for his neighbor. But at the word of the Lord, he repents. Listen to the words of Hebrews 4, 12 through 16. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen, Nathan is not going to show up at your door and tell you what you did wrong. But you have the word of the Lord. Verse 13 And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Do you hear it? The word of God will divide and convict you. And do not think you can conceal your sin for a moment. Verse 14 of Hebrews 4. Good news. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Jesus Christ, the temple-building priest king who was despised and rejected, has passed through the heavens And because of this, we hold fast our confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. How much do you need to hear that after hearing the story of David? Because when we hear the story of David and we think, if this is the man God chooses and he does this, What hope is there for the rest of us? And this is our hope. So we hold fast to our confession. Lord, this is what I've done. I have despised my neighbor, and in so doing, I have despised you. I have done it with my words. I have done it with my lack of words. I have done it with my actions. I have done it with my lack of actions. I have done it with my thoughts, and I have done it. Lord, help me with my thoughtlessness. Hold fast to your confession. Verse 16 says this, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What we can take from the story of David is that when we allow God's word to convict us and expose us, the only rational response is to hold fast to our confession and repent and to know that in doing that, we can draw near with confidence Because a better king 
rules eternally on the throne of David. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the hard stories. Thank you for the stories that challenge us. Lord, help us to worship you as a God who is just, with the same fervor that we worship you as a God who is merciful and gracious. Lord, help us to understand your mercy and grace as it holds hands with your justice. And Father, we thank you that your justice was satisfied in the death of Christ and your mercy and grace flow to us as he intercedes for us. And we say with the saints of all ages that this Christ has died, this Christ has risen, and this Christ will surely come again. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.